You're listening to the So What Podcast. So I think that, yeah, the somewhat surprising, maybe startling thing about studying heresy is that heresy historically does not deviate from a pre-established council or, or defined orthodoxy. Instead, I think it's, we have to be more historically honest, and I think it's just more charity. We have to admit that heresy is an attempt at orthodoxy. Now, yes, there are bad attempts. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this second of a two-part episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. David Wilhite. Dr. Wilhite received his PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he studied patristic theology. He's currently Associate Professor of Theology at the Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University and is the author of the book, The Gospel According to the Heretics, Discovering Orthodoxy Through Early Christological Conflicts, published by Baker Press. Before we rejoin our discussion, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes may be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. And you can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for So What Podcast. Well, let's head over to our interview. David, I want to ask a question about the word heresy and its sort of creeping semantic range. Um, to declare something anathema is an extremely serious charge and one that should be done soberly and after much de- deliberation, I would think. Mm-hmm. Though there are perhaps certain beliefs that might crop up as heresy immediately on one's radar, but my impression is this word is kind of in general circulation in a loose sense um, in the church and in society, perhaps, and is normally not intended with much theological weight um, by those who use it. And so differences of interpretation where Christians might uh, legitimately disagree are sometimes referred to as heretical by, you know, an opponent. Right. You know, f- for example, should a woman be in the pulpit or an elder? And there are those who might think, you know, yes, and it's heresy to say no, and vice versa. Um, but I-, I would like to hear your impression about not women in ministry, but uh, what uh, what you th- what you think about that, and in terms of a working definition for heresy, if if uh, when I when I hear like you mentioned Galatians one and Paul and another gospel, um, you know, if if the gospel is is believing that which allows one to be saved, um, then might there be an opposite definition, a working definition of heresy of believing that which is 
which will prove damnable mm. or or believing believing something that places you outside of the bounds of salvation maybe i can tag that very quickly before you answer um I mean, i've heard the the statement that heresy is teaching a doctrine that's been condemned by a church council so is that maybe to just to supplement travis's mm. question is that a used useful helpful or have i just heard that somewhere and how do you discern i think his question is the difference between that and you know someone disagreeing about the rapture or something right yeah uh yes but again this comes back to historically when are we talking about so um once you start to have church councils that becomes very easy yes that's that's what's known as heresy uh every every ecumenical council ends with all the bishops standing up and saying anathema to all the heretics anathema 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 and they all go home uh so this is something, though, that in the early Christianity, we just the Christians didn't have that luxury. Not even Paul has that luxury. In fact, when he says, um, "Let them be anathema," I mean, the what he says it about is in when talking about how the Christians have abandoned their gospel. Then, if if someone does this, he says, "Let them be anathema." And of course, who's he talking about in that chapter in Galatians? He's talking about Peter and the people in Antioch who would not fellowship with the other. Christians. Um, he doesn't seem to really accurse Peter or the people or even those who have come from Antioch and seem to be causing division. I mean, what he seems to be saying is that this is this idea of division and factionalism itself is anathema to the church. It is it, it is completely antithetical to what it means to be church. In fact, when Paul later says anathema, uh, this is in 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two, he says it again. If anyone does not love the Lord. I mean, so it's the love of the Lord that matters. Let him be anathema. And then he in, immediately counters that with Maranatha, come, come, Lord Jesus. So I think that, yeah, the somewhat surprising, maybe startling thing about studying heresy is that heresy historically does not deviate from a pre-established council or, or defined orthodoxy. Instead, I think it's, we have to, we have to be more historically honest. And I think it's just more Christian charity, we have to admit that heresy is an attempt at orthodoxy. Now, yes, there are bad attempts. Um, and so out of love, uh, Paul and others are correcting heretics. So that means orthodoxy is a response to heresy. And then we have to admit sometimes orthodoxy was an inadequate response to heresy. So um, just about every heretic you can go through, you mentioned uh, Sabellius. The Sabellians were probably responding to the Marcionites. They probably overreacted. And uh, then Arius comes along, and he's overreacting to the Sabellians. And then Apollinaris overreacts to... And each one of these is a su the success of heretic. Uh, Nestorius responds to Apollinarius. But Nestorius himself ends up being a heretic because he, you know, over-adjusted, uh, overcompensated. I think that we have to admit that orthodoxy is always a uh, process of searching for the full expression of truth. But remember that the only person who really declares uh, heresy uh, in, in early Christianity, it comes down to an ecumenical council. And even then, when you know a council is ecumenical, it's only an ecumenical council if the next ecumenical council declares it an ecumenical council. Uh, so we're always... If by saying orthodoxy is a response to heresy, we always have to respond uh, in charity uh, and with fear and trembling, knowing we could be next. Sorry, I kind of went a bit off stray from where you were asking me, but again, I just think that 
points to how what a dynamic pro- I mean the word orthodoxy is not even a New Testament word uh, right I mean the now heresy is in the New Testament so mm-hmm. you see orthodoxy yeah. is a later response trying to hold on to what uh, is revealed in the New Testament what the apostolic preaching has always said yeah it's uh in the early Christians I've always found it interesting are, are a Jewish heresy you know are a are a are a sect that arises within Judaism uh, that is largely rejected, censured, persecuted, but by the by the you know um, Jewish believers uh, in large part. No, well, it's a, yeah, that that brings up great. That's a great question to bring up because yeah, my first two chapters I deal with the relationship uh, between Christianity and Judaism because from a sociological perspective, what you're saying is absolutely true. Judaism was first, and then Christianity deviated from that and uh, accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But again, uh, this is this is the exact opposite of how the early Christians are seeing this. Uh, and historically, I think correct. I think we have to we have to rethink that and say what we know today uh, of today as Judaism is not the same thing as the religion of Israel. And of course, this is a very delicate matter in terms of uh, religious dialogue today with contemporary Jews. But I mean, in in these dialogues, contemporary Jews will admit this: the religion of Israel, um, in many ways, if not ended, radically uh, evolved into something else with the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And so, instead of thinking of one line of pre-established Judaism from which Christianity deviated, I mean, Christians and Jews at this time would both claim they were the true successors of Israel. Israel I mean, Paul in Galatians, yeah. the same passage we're talking about, calls the church of God the Israel of God. Uh, we, we've been grafted into what was ancient Israel, Israel according to the flesh, but Christians claim they're the successors. And of course, uh, rabbinic Judaism claims the exact same thing. So this is more of a, a parting of the ways, despite the problems with that term. That's, it's more of a parting of the ways than one being a splinter heretical group from another. To bring it back to contemporary appropriation of these questions, uh, is there something about um, the postmodern climate um, with sort of an appreciation for no absolutes or relativistic thinking, um, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, that has sort of primed the waters for um, a resurgence of interest in the diversity of early Christianity, and is it used as to sort of build a, a, a modern agenda to some degree? I may be leading the witness a bit with that question, but uh, um, <laughs> well, you uh, where, could you where, could you just clarify? So you, I followed you, I think, on the question about the postmodern, but then yeah, what did you mean by so, the modern agenda? So, well, I, no, not the modern agenda. Just I, I, I was not careful with my terminology there. Just postmodernism tends to be, you know, relativistic. And we've seen a reinvigorated interest in, you know, well, who's to say Arius wasn't a good, good, well-intentioned believer? Um, and, and so is there an analogy? Um, say we have a particular view of ecclesiology where we want to um, change traditional aspects of, of, of the church. We want to revise approaches to maybe sexuality or, or um, different kinds of things. And... So in order to prop up that effort, we say, well, look at the early church. There were all sorts of diverse views, and the bishops just were power players and wanted to kick all the heretics out. And that's what you traditionalists are doing now. You're the power players, and you want to kick us all out. But we're just like they were. You know, we're well-intentioned. We're followers of Jesus, even if we don't agree with you on all the details. Is there? It seems to me there's sort of a, an analogy, or, or, or we're using... Uh, revisionist attempts at the early church to prop up our efforts to revise things today. 
Um, yeah, there's no doubt that is going on. Uh, and I think you would find many scholars in what I'm calling the revisionist approach to early Christian studies uh, admitting that they like a really diverse uh, approach to Christianity today, and therefore, you know, we're just about anything. I mean, they wouldn't say anything goes, but that sort of approach. And so it's no surprise that they are appealing, uh, you know, they, they see and find appealing this diversity in early Christianity and therefore play it up. I mean, I guess what I would want to supplement that thought with, though, is that um, this is this is not all that new. I mean, this is really a, a sort of a, a Protestant impulse is Protestants came along and said, what? You know, uh, Luther has this work on the councils where he talks about how even in the councils there's disagreement. I mean, uh, the, the church fathers who were uh, who were declared orthodox at the Council of Chalcedon, Fourth Ecumenical Council, uh, then their writings are declared unorthodox at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. I mean, so he, he, of course, had a field day with this to say you can't really trust the tradition. You have to trust sola scriptura is the, the principle there. Later Protestants come along and take this further and further and further. So um, people like Adolf von Harnack and Walter Bauer and others are all seeing themselves as, you know, in the spirit of Luther, of doing what we should do, a, a historical retrieval of what was early Christianity, not just what the tradition has told us about early Christianity. Um, and interesting enough, when it takes the, the postmodern turn that you mentioned, I, I think it's kind of interesting how things have, have in a way come full circle. Um, I mean, so if we're going to say this is just a problem of postmodernism, well, that, that may be true, but I don't know if the modern approach was any better, where modernism said everything is just, you know, a pure reason, and everyone could use their own pure reason to come to this truth, uh, no matter what the subject is, of orthodoxy or whatever. I mean, I think we've seen that that, that clearly failed. Um, people's contexts do shape how they, uh, how they come to understand things. So oddly enough, in this postmodernism turn that I talked about, um, all of the all of the, the great names, the champions of this postmodernism and deconstructionism and continental philosophy, like Derrida, Michael Foucault, uh, Leotard, all, all of these philosophers, ended up writing their last book on Augustine of Hippo, of all things, um, and they they came to reclaim this sense of I, I'm not quite sure what they were searching for, but this this idea that something deep within the self. Um, actually does grasp for the transcendent. And they found the early Christians like Augustine that, uh, a, a great source for that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if postmodernism is the best way to think about this because this ends up requiring us to define postmodernism, and that's notoriously difficult. Um, if everything is relevant in postmodernism and everyone has their individual truth, Augustine has already admitted that. He simply says that's due to the that's due to sin in the world and sin in the human soul. And so this is not um, this is not a good thing. This is simply a confession of how the world is fallen. But Christians can still claim by faith something beyond this, you know, so-called postmodern condition. We still believe in what has been proclaimed by, by the Christian witness. So your point that philosophers were kind of uh, poking or prodding at Augustine tiptoes me toward a question, and, and this would just be your opinion, uh, but from maybe a soteriological perspective, do you believe that there, that the Holy Spirit plays a role in maintaining orthodoxy? Or maybe uh, to better answer or ask the question, uh, does the Holy Spirit play a role in keeping the true gospel alive uh, in the universal church? Oh, yes, I believe this as a practicing Christian. In fact, at the end of the book, I kind of I quote this idea that is, is pretty common among 
church historians where you say that um, once you realize what I've been talking about, that heresy, you know, really comes first. Orthodoxy is a response to heresy. So there's this uh, catchphrase that you'll find that says uh, heresy is the mother of orthodoxy. And that's maybe helpful, uh, memorable uh, for students. But I, I, I subtly critique that and say, really, that's 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 not how Christians would ever speak of this. It, because we would say uh, the, the church is the mother of orthodoxy. The church, uh, guided by the Spirit, is the mother of orthodoxy. Heresy does have a role to play here. I, I say heresy is the uh, something like an unpleasant midwife of orthodoxy. <laughs> but yes, we believe uh, that what Jesus said in John 14, that the Spirit leads us into all truth. And that's why I think there's nothing to fear in talking about, you know, um, see, seeing, trying to understand the heretics on their own term, trying to understand how orthodox was a response to heresy, because uh, we can see how this response m- moved further and further toward a, uh, a, you know, a valid, appropriate response to heresy, a, a confession that holds true to what Christians claim they always have confessed. So we need to see heresy in the context of divine providence. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I, I say in the, my concluding chapter, heresy is actually a gift of God to the church, because it's only by um, exploring the boundaries of our faith do we truly understand our faith. Augustine himself said that the rejection of heretics brings into relief what your church holds and what sound doctrine maintains. Uh, were it not for heretics, we would we would have a lot of fuzzy things going on in our thinking, Um I think what we would all hope for, again, this is back to this charity, this, this aspect of love that should be involved here that Paul talked about. What we all hope is that um, the heretics are humble and willing to be corrected. But we equally have to hope uh, that the Orthodox are loving in their correction and speak the truth in love. I've got a member of my church who likes to say, um, you never know where the line is unless you cross it occasionally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> This, I think, I think, I think there's something to be said for that. The sad thing is, these are these are not just lines; uh, these are cliffs people could fall off of. So, <laughs> can right. we somehow yeah. all be belayed to one another and say, yes, the heretics must be among you. Uh, they they are in the people of God, and it it is it is our duty not simply to anathematize them. I mean, there there will come a day when we must say that, but we're also saying, come, Lord Jesus, uh, Maranatha, and can we correct one another and bear one another's burdens? Uh, I'm interested in the idea of the dynamic guidance of the Holy Spirit in the church uh, as a, I don't know if antidote's the right word, but as a, as something that's going to help uh, shore up true Christianity from its opponents or even heresies from within. And I'm, I'm thinking of the, what is perhaps the first church council in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, and they're trying to decide what to do with these Gentile converts who are experiencing the full um, baptism of the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, a regenerative experience as the the Jews have experienced. And um, near the end of their letter, on uh, on the instructions they're giving them, they say, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And just that phrase of being able to speak as a church, you know, we, we, so these, uh, the idea of unity, of love that you mentioned and of truth and bringing those kind of into concord and being able to speak with one voice to an issue um, that there's, and I'm also thinking of John 10 and how, uh, you know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. So maybe you could comment on a couple of those things uh, and bringing that into, so your earlier point that you can't anticipate what the heresies will be, you just encounter them 
you know, historically as they crop up and there's no uh, way to catalog it. I mean, there's a finite number of things perhaps that uh, the the errors kind of start to fall into categories, you know, about the nature of Christ. That is, you can overemphasize his human or divine nature, etc. And so, you know, there's a finite number of ways you can go wrong, but, um, you know, like you were saying, it's incredibly diverse. There is no one kind of heretic or heresy in that sense. And so, you know, the anecdote about the best way to spot a counterfeit is to make yourself very familiar with the original or how, you know, police officers will learn to recognize counterfeit money is to study the original. And so there's a corollary to that, isn't there, with Jesus's sheep know his voice. And so the more a church and the more an individual Christian is familiar with the voice of Jesus spoken in the gospel, spoken in the word of God, um, the more quickly they'll be able to, one would expect, recognize a voice speaking that is not Christ or that deviates from from Christ. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, for example, Origen is 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 fima, uh, famous, uh, if, if not infamous, um, for his talk about how to interpret Scripture. Uh, it's always described as allegory. He he really talks about these three layers of, of Scripture: the the flesh and the the soul and the spirit. And you're not just looking for the literal meaning, but you're looking for that higher spiritual meaning. Um, what's often missed in studying that, because Protestants come along and generally reject all of that and say we're looking for the literal meaning. Um, but what's often missed is uh, Origen is adamant that the spiritual meaning is only apparent to the spirit-filled believer. Um, and so for Origen, he's very philosophical, but not in the way we think of him as just pure reason. He's not, um, he doesn't think that just a good Bible scholar will get to the right answer sitting in an academic library because the, the Bible scholar has studied well enough. Um, what's required in the early church is to be in tune with God's Spirit. Now, the question always comes up, well, then how do you know if someone's in tune to God's Spirit? So Acts 15 says this seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us and the congregation all affirmed. Yes, it does. Um, that is the exact basis, uh, just as an interesting footnote here, that's, that's the exact basis used for later Christians, and to this day, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christians believe that the ecumenical councils are also inspired just like yeah. the, the scriptures inspired, because they believe that the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church yeah. into all truth. And when the when the bishops all gather together uh, in uh, as church, they're saying essentially what Acts 15 says. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Yeah. Now, again, the problem is you never a lot of councils throughout history met and said that. And then the next council came along and said, no, 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 sorry, that was actually an Arian council. That's that's not ecumenical. That was not of the Holy Spirit. Um, so the. The, that's back to our contingency. I think we have to always have a dose of humility. We're never really going to be sure this was the Holy Spirit until hindsight. There seems to be some humility embedded in that verse, even though it's, you know, what we would hold as an inspired text in Acts 15, that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And to yeah, us. yeah and he's putting it forward, asking this others is our, to this test is our the sense, Spirit. our subjective sense that he's leading in this direction, but it's yeah. not an absolute pronouncement. Um, no, exactly right. So there's some good humility there. Last question I want to ask you, uh, specifically the Protestant church. Can we speak this way? Can we speak as a church? You know, we're talking about factions, divisions. We're so fragmented. Um, you know, you see these organizations that crop up, Gospel Coalition, etc. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but in attempt to give a unified voice mm-hmm. of the evangelical church, for example, um, on an issue, um, but have we not weakened ourselves to say, you know, you see in Matthew 18, go 
go tell it to the church or the church will say this, you know, about a person if they refuse to repent. Um, and there's some force to that in, uh, in a unified context. But if, you know, such and such Bible church says so-and-so is unfit for ministry, he can go across the street and join a different church. And, you know, the church is a, a effectively doesn't have a voice to speak against a person or an issue. So yeah. can you respond to that? Or we're... Sure, yeah. No, I think a lot of people are trying to ask, especially for Protestants, is, is there a public voice that the Protestant church can reclaim? And I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I think, again, what, what, what I hear um, in, in not necessarily your question, but in whenever this kind of discussion comes up, the assumption that I think is problematic is that there ever was the church the church universal that ever spoke with a unanimous voice. I mean, that really cannot happen until you have Constantine enforcing one, you know, the, the Orthodox view as opposed to the other dissenting voices in the church, the factions that must be among you. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, and this, I should probably show my cards on the table here. I mentioned earlier, I'm a Baptist, so I'm free church in my ecclesiology, but I think we're probably going to always have a problem with this whenever we start the conversation with this uh, ecclesiology from above. And instead of, uh, I mean, I do my ecclesiology from below, of course, as a free church person. Um, yes, the local church can have a voice. And yes, the local church should never be an island. The churches from the beginning always wanted to be in communication with each other, association with each other, because they see themselves as in communion with the worldwide, the church universal. But I'm not sure that the church universal has ever had one public voice. Um, if it did, it was in Acts 15, and I'm not sure that since then. And even then, let's face it, Peter and Paul still had problems after that, and there yeah, were still factions right, yeah. that came after that. Yeah. So. I think the question about our public voice is an important one, and I'm all for it. But I would just you, I would, I would urge a word of caution there and say, which church? I mean, is there a Protestant church? I, I think we're talking about Protestant denominations, which are not. Any, I'm not calling those bad things, but we we should be careful of letting one denomination or one tradition speak on behalf of the church when it's just going to be a, I think, a much more um, complex problem than that. So apparently, we have a. A sovereignly arranged providential messiness to Christianity in which we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe, and, uh, maybe so. Uh, our shepherd. Well, Adolf von Harnack said the early church was spiritual anarchism. Uh, it was anarchy, but but got, but you know filled with the spirit. So everyone had a diversity of tongues. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I want to always point out that uh, the the problems in the church are not God's problems. These are these, this is sin problems. Uh, the, the divisions in the church is not God ordained. I think these are these are sin. Th those are Babel. Those are those are because of our sin. But at the same time, I want to point out that the, the church looks like Pentecost, and it's okay if we have a diversity of gifts. Thinking about all this, the thing we always need to remember is Christ's prayer for unity to be one, as uh, as the Father and the Son are one, and uh, just things even like this podcast show that you can have a diversity of opinion and yet still unify around those things that are essential to the faith. So here on this show, we have uh, Wesleyan, the guy that preaches at a Methodist church. I would consider myself a Reformed Baptist preaching at a non-denominational church. And then, uh, Travis, I'm not mistaken, you find yourself in the Presbyterian camp. 
And then, well, Anglican by persuasion. Anglican by persuasion. Presbyterian Church at See, present. Tra- Travis is above all the most confused. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, we have folks from all different sorts of walks on the show, uh, but we all unify around the essentials. And uh, none of us would call each other heretics by any stretch of the imagination. We'll wait till I the end of the t- podcast to decide. <laughs> yes, I, mean, I think yeah. I have been called a heretic. Have you? Okay. Uh, well, by, you, by Calvinists. You you never know. Maybe by the next podcast, we'll declare what I just said anathema and then move on from we there. We won't know till the next podcast <laughs> whether right. or not what was spoken was anathema. So what? What's the big deal with heresy? Heresy, again, according to the Apostle Paul, is any gospel contrary to the one first preached by the apostles. The good news for believers is that God has promised his people that they would recognize the voice of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has safeguarded the gospel through millennia of tumultuous waves of heresy battering the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when thinking about heresy, it is crucial that we use the term with great trepidation and only after serious contemplative thought. After all, despite denominational differences, Christian brothers and sisters, whether Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Anglican, can all gather around the gospel to uphold and defend it from true heresies or other gospels. Well, we invite you to join us next time as we continue our conversation about heresies with Dr. Gerald McDermott of Beeson Divinity School to discuss Marcion and supersessionism.